Welcome to Aftermask. I'm Jonathan Levy. This week, we are talking about K-12 education and how the pandemic has affected it, which is not surprisingly severely. We have on the show this week, two people from Seton Education Partners. We have the managing partner, Stephanie Soroki de Garcia, as well as Michael Carbone, who's the chief academic officer of the Bria Schools Network. So we're really happy to have them on. They're going to talk to us about how they're supporting these families and students academically from home, but also how they're supporting these families in other ways and in really more meaningful ways than that as well. Here's Mike. We run three current charter schools. Next year, we'll be opening two more. All in the Bronx, located in District 7, which is the poorest U.S. congressional district. Since the pandemic has begun, it's been a few months now. What is the state of your three schools? Currently, all of our schools are closed and we transition to uh, distance learning. Uh, I like to tell people that basically we shut down and recreated school in three or four days. Uh, And that was no small feat and uh, really took a lot of staff collaboration uh, and trust from our families. Uh, Students and families accessed uh, their learning through one-on-one instruction with their teachers uh, who are calling, checking in. Uh, And we're also fortunate enough to be a a blended learning model, which means that we have classrooms uh, with computers for every student. And so we were able to distribute those uh, devices to our families about four or five days after we closed, we were able to operationalize that. So all of our students have access to some type of technology. The hardest piece for us at the moment with helping families um, has to do with the nature of kind of the economic situation on the public health situation that a lot of families in the South Bronx are in. So we've been able to fundraise, um, provide uh, donations to families, whether it's food, medicine, uh, childcare materials, such as diapers, um, kind of the things that we take for granted. And we started a, what we call a family support fund. And we've been fortunate enough to get things as simple as like hotspot devices for families that don't have internet access, but more importantly, we've been able to subsidize some families with rental assistance, um, food basket delivery with like fresh produce. Um, and so that, that's been probably the most meaningful lift and role we've been able to play besides kind of the academics. I asked Mike and Stephanie to tell us more about this deeper level of support they were giving that went beyond academics. In regards to kind of the extreme need, we've identified, I would say probably 15 to 20% Um, of our families require some type of kind of more significant assistance, which we're fortunately able to provide. But, you know, I I think that number will grow as the crisis kind of continues to prolong and that opportunity for work um, that's so valuable to our families um, kind of goes without. Giving the kind of assistance that you're describing, specifically the the most essential stuff, like food to families. Did you also mention helping them with their rent? We were able to procure enough donations, small and large, um, to where we have some families who um, w- w- would not be able to pay their rent. Um, and so given the current crisis, um, if we did have some of those families kind of with extreme need, families were comfortable enough to like share these kind of fears um, to not go it alone. And I think that has a lot to do with the relationships that staff cultivate. I asked Stephanie to give us a clearer picture of one of these families who's being supported to get a sense of the magnitude of the issues that they're facing and what's being done to support them. It's a family of six. The father is blind and cannot work. And the mother was recently let go from her job washing dishes due to COVID. 
three of the children um, are school age and the oldest suffers from a disability requiring extra care. Um, and in this particular situation, that child is, is very depressed right now. And, um, and so not only are the parents worried about paying rent and paying utilities and buying groceries, they're worried about, about their oldest child and how, how he is gonna be doing um, over the next several weeks or what looks like to be much longer. Um, the family will not make next month's rent without help. Is there an endpoint to the kind of to this kind of support that you can offer? Like, if the pandemic lasts for another two months, perhaps it's easier. But if it lasts for another year and a half, or if the vaccines take a little longer than maybe people are expecting, and it's like two years down the line, are you guys capable of continuing to provide this much support? That is the sixty-four thousand dollars question at the moment. I think across the sector, the short answer is probably not um, at this kind of like really acute level. Um, as you know, school funding is based on state funding. And, you know, we're fortunate to be in New York where the pure pupil is like exceptionally high. We're also fortunate enough to um, have staff and kind of contacts on our board, et cetera, who are able to fundraise on their own. And, you know, that's where all of this extra support comes from. It doesn't come from anything kind of governmental or programmatic, it comes from just donations. Uh, and I think something that we're all worried about is as this prolongs, are people able to discretionarily kind of still support uh, these essential causes? Um, and if the case is no, then obviously we'll have to scale back that level of support we can provide families. Stephanie, you're on the front lines talking to donors. What's that experience been like? The response has been overwhelmingly inspiring. So. Every single week that this crisis goes on, the, the pain that our families are experiencing um, deepens and more families are impacted. So hundreds of people, hundreds, so over 200, um, who have never donated to Seton before responded with small gifts. So $5, $20, $50. Half of our own staff donated to the campaign, and some more than once. We raised more than $300,000 in just eight weeks. What's going to happen to some of these families? Are you guys equipped to continue to support them? People of means, even if they, they don't feel as rich today as they did yesterday, um, there are a lot of rich people in New York, right? It's the philanthropic capital of the world. And they are going to have to step up. I, I, there were there were three in particular people who I've never met before. I still haven't met them, who sent me an email saying I want to help. And you know, I kind of I kind of you know just said, well, that's terrific. Can you give us, you know, can you give us five thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars? And they said, why don't you add a zero to that? I'm going to give you a hundred thousand dollars. They've asked me, do we need more help now? And I said, we're set for the next three months for the number of families that we're serving. Um, but in three months, I'm going to need to call you back. And they said, call us back. So we're, we're relying on others. I'm hopeful that we can continue to provide 
for what our, our children and families need. Looking at lower income schools across the United States, if you were going to guesstimate, what percentage of those schools do you think offer this level of support to their students and families? If I had to guess, I'd put it somewhere between 70 and 85 percent. And from what I've seen, whether it's a simple like crowd uh, sourcing fundraiser for $2,000, whether it's kind of bigger networks pooling resources from um, kind of larger private organizations who are donating food, who are donating, um, you know, medical resources. There's no one that's not trying to do something. Most of the districts in the United States don't have the kind of support your schools have. They don't have donors necessarily offering six figures. Uh, They probably don't have the resources period that you guys have. What is the timeline, do you think, for those situations before things get significantly worse? I think no matter who is in charge, the size of the group that you're trying to lead in a situation like this um, is really kind of the it factor when talking about the speed and efficiency at which you can approach the problem. We're still at a scale where we're, we're small enough um, to kind of pivot and make quicker decisions. Uh, if you're a district, let's call it the New York City Department of Education with 1.1 million students and who knows how many layers, right? Well, compared to us, they're a freight train and we're a sports car. And so our ability to stop, go, change direction is much easier than it is for a group like the DOE. How many children attend your schools? About 930 across all three schools. And so I'm guessing that ends up being like 800 families or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a good, yep, good estimation, about 800 families. What have your academic solutions been to help these students in the wake of the pandemic? Off the top of my head, I know that we have purchased about 200 hotspots from the kind of internet device. We distributed 650 of our laptops, meaning that families out of the 900 that didn't have laptops. Are there any issues with the children being able to control their laptops? Like, is there any issues with their brother or sister taking the laptop, using it, breaking it, anything like that? Also, is there space for all these kids? Like, do they have a quiet room they can go in to do this for all this time? The answer to your second question is no. Um, this, the space is kind of hard to come by um, for many of our families that live in either, you know, multi-generational apartments, um, you know, families and siblings who uh, either aren't working or also trying to do remote schooling. So I would say that our families, again, are amazing. And I've found, and like, we have some pictures where they've decorated like a small corner of the living room as like the classroom. Um, we have other families that, you know, it's at the kitchen table and they're working alongside mom and dad. Um, so yeah, the second question, and, and I would say just, no, there's, there's no like really designated space for many of our families to answer your first question. Um, so we were able to kind of push out a software, um, to kind of monitor how this, how the laptop's being used. Uh, obviously for older students, you can imagine that's a good thing to have. We've had a couple, uh, students who have for one reason or another, like broken the laptop, um, and so what we've been able to do is provide them, kind of mail them actual hard copy um, texts and resources until we can figure out a way to kind of get them an, an additional laptop. Um, I have not heard and whether or not there's been arguments within the home about siblings, other siblings not having 
um, material. How would you assess what you guys have been doing with these kids academically over the last few months? You know, it's interesting when you think about the potential gaps and there's been some resources that have come out and some studies or projections about what this like COVID gap will be. Um, I would objectively give the sector probably a, a B. So if the schooling right now is a B, what do you give school from three months ago? I put school three months ago at a B. Oh, okay. Maybe a C even. Um, I think what this has forced us to do is prioritize what's most important about learning. If you're a, a principal and you're figuring out what's reasonable to expect of my families at home, you have to begin to prioritize um, in ways that you have not when it comes to student learning experiences. Um, whether that's explicitly knowing what you need to teach to that one student as a teacher, whether or not that's as a principal to determine what's the most important part of my model that I want kids to still participate in. Um, that prioritization, I would say, has not been there. Are there things you're doing now with schooling that you'll continue to do once the pandemic is over and everyone is back to normal? And the two that immediately come to mind is um, really high impact, small group learning and one-on-one -on -one tutoring. Like if you have really great tutoring, students make substantial gains. Uh, the effect size is really large. But that's not something, you know, as a, as a school model, you generally think of if you have 35 kids in a classroom, one teacher. What are your reopening plans? I know we're planning basically for like five different scenarios of reopening. Do you reopen with a third? It's a half day for some kids, a longer day for others. Do you just have kindergarten first graders show up? Um, but we know just based on some of the, the health guidance that's come out is that the highest infection opportunity is in an enclosed space for a prolonged amount of time. <laughs> and that is the definition of school, an enclosed space for a prolonged amount of time. If we open up too soon, open up in the wrong way, um, that will take a much longer time to restart something. You know, I've said to, internally to our group of stakeholders and our leaders that we get one shot at reopening. And I, and I like mean that like with all seriousness from a, a place where our families trust us and our staff trusts us, you get one shot at reopening because the second time you have to reopen, you better believe it's going to be a lot harder. I want to thank Stephanie Soroki and Mike Carbone for coming on the show. I also want to thank you for listening. If you thought this was interesting, you should definitely come back for our next episode where we're talking to the former Assistant Secretary of Education, Chester Finn, about what schooling will look like down the road based on the changes we've already seen. And get ready, because there's some pretty surprising things. If you thought Netflix for television and movies was interesting, wait till you hear about Netflix for education. Also, if you want to check out some of our earlier episodes, we have some pretty cool stuff. We have an episode on the movie industry, which predicted some of the things that have been happening and continue to predict things that very well may happen. We have an episode on the NBA with Washington Post NBA writer Ben Golliver about reopening the NBA, what some worst case scenarios are. We also have an episode about the World Series of Poker. Poker is, of course, a place where people gather, touch things, and pass them back and forth, sit in close proximity to each other, and face each other for hours and hours and hours. We talked to tournament director Matt Savage and professional player Matt Vaughn about 
what it'll be like to reopen potentially live poker, what live poker may look like in the future. So there's a lot of different things. You can, of course, check us out at AfterMaskPod on Twitter. And I will see you next week. I'm Jonathan Levy. Thanks for listening to Aftermask. Aftermask.